This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened, I'm okay, other people have it worse, it doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's best eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. In 1981, well into the third decade of the Cold War, Ronald Reagan was sworn in as president. Reagan saw the U.S. as the city on the hill, a promised land that brought together dreamers from all over the world. Preserving this image meant not only eliminating drugs and crime within U.S. cities, but also fighting perceived threats to American values worldwide. In 1981, Reagan signed off on a top-secret document called the National Security Decision Directive, which gave the CIA a $19 million budget to support a right-wing Nicaraguan force called the Contras. The Contras were fighting to topple Nicaragua's socialist government, a political goal that the United States shared. A few years after that, the streets of American cities from New York to Los Angeles were flooded with a powerful new drug called crack cocaine. Some of those drugs were being smuggled in by Nicaraguan traffickers who, in turn, were sending the profits back home to the Contras. In Reagan's pursuit of a political agenda, his administration had turned a blind eye to the drug trafficking activities of their beloved Nicaraguan rebels. This much is proven to be true. But can political tunnel vision really explain such a massive oversight? Was Reagan merely complicit in the Contra's crimes? Or was the crack epidemic the real goal all along? 
Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a ParCast original. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is the first episode on the crack epidemic of the 1980s and its relation to a government scandal known as Iran-Contra. In his quest to undermine the socialist Nicaraguan government, President Ronald Reagan authorized the CIA to recruit and assist a right-wing rebel group called the Contras. To raise additional funds for their revolutionary activities, the Contras also engaged in international drug trafficking, which the CIA ignored. According to the official story, there are proven ties between the CIA and the Latin American drug traffickers who were responsible for the influx of cocaine. But the U.S. government did not in any way collude with them to bring drugs into the states or start the crack epidemic. Next week, we'll dig a little deeper into those connections between the CIA and crack cocaine. Many people believe the CIA's crime was more than just negligence. It was conspiracy. 1985, a brisk winter day in Pacoima, California. The neighborhood is quiet, tranquil, and mostly full of families. An ice cream truck ambles by, perhaps a bit too late in the year to attract a crowd. Despite the cool weather, three young children sprint out of a small Spanish-style house at the end of a cul-de-sac. They each pick out an ice cream treat and one for their mother, too. They head back inside and sit down on the couch to watch a rerun of Family Ties. Suddenly, there's a deafening crash as a 14-foot battering ram busts through the wall. The mother and children scatter. A SWAT team charges through the gaping hole in the side of the house and begins ransacking the place room by room. As the children cry in the corner, an officer announces that he's found something. He holds up a plastic bag containing a few small chalky rocks, crack cocaine. This is just an example of one of the many dramatic scenes that were broadcast on the nightly news in the 1980s. As early as 1981, reports of rampant violence, homelessness, and overdoses were emerging out of south-central Los Angeles. Within a few years, the chaos had spread to cities all over the country. The culprit was a new form of cocaine known as crack. Cocaine is a stimulant derived from the coca plant, which is native to South America. It became popular as a party drug in the 1970s for its energy-boosting effects. 
But because of its high price, the drug was mostly reserved for wealthy business people and celebrities, and it earned a fairly benign reputation compared to quote-unquote street drugs like heroin and marijuana. In fact, the DEA completely ignored cocaine for years. That all began to change in the early 1980s. The DEA's hands-off attitude allowed the cocaine trade to flourish. And in just a few years, a Colombian drug operation called the Medellin Cartel had built the infrastructure to smuggle hundreds of metric tons of cocaine into the U.S. every year. Cargo ships and private planes full of drugs were landing in Miami, Florida on a daily basis. And turf wars between dealers led to a sudden spike in violent crime. Throughout the 80s, the once small, sleepy city of Miami averaged 500 homicides a year. By the time the DEA finally started paying attention, the problem was too big to control. In the early 80s, law enforcement started cracking down in Miami, where the majority of the nation's cocaine was coming in. In response, Colombian cartels teamed up with smugglers in Mexico and started moving their cocaine over the U.S.-Mexico border instead. The flow of drugs continued completely uninterrupted. By the early 80s, there was actually so much cocaine coming to the U.S. that prices began to plummet. To keep their profit margins up, American cocaine dealers needed to shift their business model. Enter crack cocaine. By simply boiling cocaine together with water and baking soda, the powder can be turned into a solid substance known as crack. These rock-like crystals are purer and more concentrated than powder cocaine, and they can be smoked instead of snorted, creating a faster and more powerful high. More importantly, the process of cooking cocaine into crack essentially stretches a tiny amount of powder into several doses that can be sold to more people at lower prices. In most major cities in the 1980s, a single dose of crack could be bought for just $2.50, the equivalent of less than $7 in 2019. What was once an expensive drug reserved for the elite was now cheap enough that anyone could get their hands on it. Crack is also substantially more addictive than traditional powder cocaine. The high is intense and short-lived, lasting half an hour or less compared to the hour or more of regular cocaine, meaning customers are always coming back for more. Although the concept of crack had been around for a while, no dealers ever attempted to sell it pre-made until 1979. A young drug dealer by the name of Freeway Rick Ross saw an untapped market in his south-central L.A. neighborhood. Cocaine had never caught on in inner-city black communities because of its high price point, but crack had the ability to change that. In 1979, Rick Ross began selling pre-cooked crack rocks, which he branded as Ready Rock. It was a massive success. Within just a few years, Rick estimates he was pulling in $3 million per day. It didn't take long before other drug dealers got into the game. By 1985, crack was available in every major city in America, from L.A. to New York to Milwaukee to Cleveland. People of all races and socioeconomic classes were using the drug, but urban black communities were hit the hardest. 
By 1986, cocaine-related emergency room visits increased by 110% across the nation. Within one generation, national homicide rates for young black males more than doubled. Video footage of gang violence and strung-out addicts flooded the nightly news. Upper- and middle-class Americans panicked, and the Reagan administration upped the ante on the war on drugs. President Nixon had first declared a war on drugs in the 70s, but in the early 80s, President Ronald Reagan took an even tougher stance. Militarized police forces were sent into the inner cities to weed out drug dealers. New sentencing laws like the Three Strikes Law, which mandated life imprisonment for any third-time felony offender, led to a skyrocketing incarceration rate, primarily for black males. At the same time, countless charges of corruption, racial profiling, and falsified evidence were filed against police departments across the country. Many historians believe Reagan's harsh anti-drug policies actually did more harm than good by pitting law enforcement against at-risk communities instead of working with them to minimize the damage of drug addiction. And while the Reagan administration was publicly deploying their full forces against the cocaine trade, behind the scenes, they were funding it. Coming up, we'll look at the connection between the crack epidemic and a government scandal that became known as the Iran-Contra affair. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. How did Freeway Rick Ross become a nationwide crack kingpin nearly overnight in the early 1980s? Well, he had some help from his supplier, Danilo Blandone, a Nicaraguan cocaine trafficker with close ties to the Contras. Let's circle back to 1979, when Rick Ross was peddling his first batch of crack in south-central L.A. That same year, the Nicaraguan dictator, Anastasio Somoza de Baile, was overthrown by a socialist group called the Sandinista National Liberation Front. Somoza was, by all accounts, not an impeccable leader. 
He violently suppressed any opposition. He collected blood plasma from citizens and sold it to foreign hospitals for his own personal profit. And in 1972, he embezzled money that had been collected for earthquake relief. However, the Sandinistas didn't turn out to be much better. As soon as they took power in 1979, they instituted a socialist state, abolished elections, and arrested anyone who opposed the new government. By 1980, the Sandinistas had formed an alliance with the Soviet Union as well as communist Cuba. All of these developments alarmed the newly elected U.S. President Ronald Reagan. When he took office in 1981, the primary goal of U.S. foreign policy was to stop the spread of communism and weaken the Soviet Union's power. A socialist state in Central America was the last thing they needed. For help with this problem, Reagan called on his freshly appointed CIA director, Bill Casey. Bill Buccaneer Casey was considered something of a renegade within the CIA. He was said to have a photographic memory, which made him able to read dense textbooks in a matter of hours. He hung a portrait of Wild Bill Donovan, the head of the Office of Strategic Services, the CIA's predecessor office during World War II, on his office wall. Donovan believed that intelligence should be global and totalitarian, meaning that nothing was outside of their purview and nothing was off-limits. Bill Casey wanted to bring that fighting spirit back to the CIA. When Reagan asked him for help with the Sandinista problem, Casey had the perfect solution. Use CIA resources to mount a right-wing Nicaraguan rebellion. Discontent with the Sandinista regime was already building from all sides. Nicaraguan National Guard members who'd supported the Somoza dictatorship former Sandinistas who were disappointed with the corrupt new government, even politically uninvolved Nicaraguans who hadn't taken sides in the revolution. The CIA's job was to organize all those elements into a unified resistance. In September 1981, CIA operatives arranged a meeting between the leaders of these separate anti-Sandinista factions. After some heated debate, they agreed to work together and the merged group became known as the Contras. The Contras set up headquarters in Honduras, just north of the Nicaraguan border. On December 1st, 1981, Reagan signed a top-secret directive authorizing the CIA to spend $19 million recruiting, training, and arming the Contra rebels. This went swimmingly for about a year. Then, in November 1982, a Newsweek article revealed the truth about the CIA's efforts to undermine the Sandinista government. The Democrats in Congress weren't very happy that Reagan was trying to overthrow a foreign government without their knowledge. Even though Congress doesn't have to sign off on a president's secret directives to the CIA, they do have to be informed about it, and Reagan had broken that rule. In December 1982, Congress passed the first of three bills known as the Boland Amendments. The first bill called for the U.S. to stop, quote, the use of funds for the purpose of overthrowing the government of Nicaragua or provoking a war between Nicaragua and Honduras. Reagan himself signed that bill into law, but the first Boland Amendment had a loophole. 
The U.S. government couldn't send money to Nicaragua for military purposes, but it said nothing about non-military purposes, like humanitarian aid or infrastructure. Later in 1983, Reagan gained congressional approval for $100 million in non-military aid for the Contras. Then, in 1984, Congress learned that the CIA was using that money to place mines off the Nicaraguan coast and blow up ships belonging to the Sandinista government. Surprise! The non-military funding was, indeed, being used for military purposes. Congress tried to clarify their language by passing the second Boland Amendment in October 1984, stating that, quote, no funds available to the Central Intelligence Agency, the Department of Defense, or any other agency or entity of the United States involved in intelligence activities may support directly or indirectly any military or paramilitary operations in Nicaragua by any nation, organization, movement, or individual. However, Bolin too had another loophole, the CIA and Department of Defense were barred from giving aid to the Contras, but the law said nothing about the National Security Council. The NSC was another agency involved in covert operations, which reported directly to President Reagan. Technically speaking, the NSC could raise funds for the Contras without breaking the law, but they'd have to do it quietly to avoid the ire of Congress. One of the council's members, Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, had an idea so complex, so convoluted, that it just might work. Well, let's fly 8,000 miles east to Iran. In the early 80s, Iran was under the rule of Ayatollah Khomeini, who had recently severed all ties with the United States and threatened to overthrow various governments around the Middle East, in response to that, in 1983, the U.S. launched a massive diplomatic effort to convince international governments not to sell any arms or military equipment to Iran. In response to that, in 1985, seven Americans were taken hostage in Lebanon. Iran was willing to let the hostages go if the United States sold them some weapons. And the problem was that U.S. diplomats were already traversing the globe lecturing world leaders on why selling arms to Iran was morally reprehensible. It would be a PR disaster to backtrack on that stance, overturn the trade embargo against Iran, and publicly cave to the hostage-takers' demands. In July 1985, the National Security Advisor, Bud McFarlane, proposed a plan to President Reagan. The U.S. would sell 100 tow anti-tank missiles to Iran, and to get around the trade embargo and keep the deal under wraps, they would use Israel as a middleman. Simply put, Israel would purchase the weapons from the United States, then quietly sell and deliver them to Iran. But why stop there? The NSC's Oliver North thought the trade arrangement was a perfect opportunity to kill two birds with one stone or fund two terrorist groups with one secret operation. In the now infamous Diversion Memo, North outlined an amendment to McFarland's initial plan. 
The U.S. would sell $2 million worth of weapons to Iran through Israel for the extremely marked-up price of $14 million. The $12 million in profits would be diverted to the Nicaraguan Contras. At first, the Iranians balked at the 700% markup, but thanks to America's efforts to stop any other country from supplying them with arms, there was no other option, and they eventually caved. In February 1986, a shipment of 1,000 tow missiles was sent to Iran via Israel, with the promise of many more to come. The profits were funneled through a fake company called the Stanford Technology Trading Group International. The next step was turning that money into weapons and getting them to the Contras without anyone finding out. Oliver North recruited a few privately owned air transport companies to send weapons down to Nicaragua. Six of those companies were, coincidentally, owned and operated by convicted or suspected drug traffickers. Among them was a Honduran cocaine trafficker, Juan Mata Ballesteros, who was a major player in Colombia's Medellin cartel. Mata Ballesteros airline, Setco, had been shipping supplies to the Contras stationed in Honduras since 1984. At the time Setco officially began working with the State Department in late 1985, the U.S. government was attempting to extradite Mata Ballesteros from Colombia for the murder of a DEA agent the previous February. Oliver North apparently chose to overlook this. Once the supplies had made it to Central America, the next step was distributing them among the Contra forces. For help with this, North turned to a former CIA agent named Felix Rodriguez. Rodriguez had been part of a top-secret assassination squad that tried to kill Cuban leader Fidel Castro in 1961. In 1967, he led the team that captured and executed Che Guevara in Bolivia. And in the mid-1980s, he was put in charge of a Contra supply center at the Ilopongo Air Base in El Salvador. With his vast experience in Latin America covert operations, Rodriguez became North's liaison for on-the-ground Contra operations. Since the Sandinistas controlled Nicaragua itself, the Contra set up headquarters in the surrounding countries, Honduras, El Salvador, and Costa Rica. North and Rodriguez had to oversee operations in all three countries, and it was a lot to keep under control. Oliver North made notes of a conversation he had in July 1985 with one of his covert pilots, retired Air Force General Richard Secord. Secord told him about a warehouse full of weapons in Honduras that the Contras had purchased with drug money, $14 million in drug money, to be exact. Secord believed that might be something to worry about. But North effectively brushed this off. Honduran drug trafficking was not the NSC or CIA's problem, and there was no reason to bring the DEA into their top-secret, possibly illegal operation. Speaking of the DEA, around the same time, a DEA agent named Celerino Castillo III reported that the Contras were using the Ilopango Air Base in El Salvador to store massive amounts of cocaine. 
Castillo tracked flights in and out of the airbase and noted that the same airlines being used by North for Contra supply missions were also being used for drug flights. When Castillo reported this information, he claims he was told by a CIA employee that drug trafficking was the only way the Contras could fund their rebellion and that he should stop looking into it. Castillo kept sending reports to the DEA, but they were never investigated. In the summer of 1986, Oliver North received a visit from another known drug trafficker, Manuel Noriega, the dictator of Panama. Noriega had been on the CIA's payroll as an intelligence asset since 1971, and as early as 1983, he was recruited to help the U.S. send weapons to the Contras. Panama is located directly between Colombia, where the world's two largest cocaine cartels were headquartered, and Costa Rica, where the Contras were arming up for revolution. Noriega used his convenient home base to run a dizzying array of criminal schemes, including smuggling drugs both to the Contras in Costa Rica and directly into the United States. As early as the 1970s, the U.S. government had what one official called a 21-cannon barrage of evidence of Noriega's various crimes. But Oliver North let it slide because the intelligence he was passing along about Nicaragua was too good to pass up. However, in June 1986, the New York Times published a series of articles about Noriega's various crimes, and his reputation with American intelligence was on thin ice. In response, the dictator offered to smooth things over by taking care of the Sandinistas, even pitching the idea of assassinating some of the Nicaraguan government's leaders. North relayed this to the national security advisor, John Poindexter. North proposed giving Noriega $1 million to sabotage the Sandinistas in whatever way he saw fit. Poindexter immediately wrote back in the affirmative, saying, quote, I have nothing against Noriega except his illegal activities. The operation we've just put together is more of a sewage system than a pipeline. Money, drugs, and weapons are literally flying all over the map. Oliver North was in over his head. And in the autumn of 1986, the system was about to burst. Coming up, we'll take a look at the fallout of the NSC's international arms scheme. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Take something iconic, like the all-electric 2024 Fiat 500e. Add something electrica. Bring the swagger. And an Italian icon is remixed and ready to drop with its available premium JBL audio system. Tap the banner to learn more. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA. Used under license by FCA US LLC. Now, back to the story. 
October 5th, 1986. Parrots and cicadas echo in the humid jungles of Nicaragua. Near the Costa Rican border, a young Sandinista soldier sees an unfamiliar cargo plane soaring above him. He jumps into action and shoots it down, killing three of the four crew members inside. Only one man crawls from the wreckage alive, Eugene Hassenfuss. It would have been his lucky day if he hadn't been carrying an ID card linking him to Southern Air Transport, a known CIA proprietary company. Eugene was captured by the Sandinista soldiers, and he soon revealed that he was part of a covert operation to send weapons to the Contras. He was making $3,000 a month, kicking boxes out of his plane into Contra camps in the jungle below. The plane that had just gone down contained 70 Soviet-made AK-47 rifles and 100,000 rounds of ammunition, rocket grenades, and other supplies. Eugene's boss, Max Gomez, a.k.a. Felix Rodriguez, was an agent of the CIA. The secret was out. The U.S. government was sending arms to the Contras, despite direct prohibition from Congress. This incident was the first nail in the coffin. The second came a few weeks later, when two Lebanese newspapers caught wind of the arms deal between Iran and the U.S. It suspected that the information was leaked by an assistant to the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff, who felt the operation was spiraling out of control. At first, there were no details linking the Iranian arms deals to the Contra arms deals, except the presence of National Security Council member Oliver North. Ronald Reagan addressed the public on November 13th, stating that, quote, we did not condone and do not condone the shipment of arms from other countries. All the evidence, however, was pointing to the contrary. Oliver North knew the end was coming. On November 21st, 1986, he called in his secretary, Fawn Hall, for a shredding party. He wanted to be ahead of the curve in destroying any incriminating documents. But North and Hall somehow missed the diversion memo, the single most important document linking the Iran arms deal scandal to the Contra funding scandal. Once that little piece of paper came to light, it was all over. From 1986 to 1989, a number of investigations were held to determine exactly what was happening in Iran and Nicaragua. This included a review board called the Tower Commission, an independent council led by Lawrence Walsh, and a series of joint congressional hearings with witnesses including John Poindexter and Oliver North. Poindexter claimed that the buck stopped with him and that Reagan never authorized any part of the arms deal with Iran. Reagan repeated the same claim in a series of press conferences. When called before the Tower Commission, Reagan conveniently had no recollection of authorizing any arms deal with Iran or authorizing the diversion of funds to the Contras. Some people believe he was suffering from early symptoms of Alzheimer's, with which he would later be diagnosed. Well, others believe he didn't actually forget about selling weapons to Iranian extremists and sending the profits to a right-wing Nicaraguan militia. None of the investigations were able to prove that Reagan was involved in the affair, 
but to many in the government, it seemed inconceivable that the president could have no idea what his CIA and National Security Council were up to. In 1986, a subcommittee led by Senator John Kerry began looking into allegations that the Contras had been involved in narcotics trafficking. Over 14 days of open hearings, the committee spoke to 27 witnesses and 20 more were deposed by committee staff. The committee's report revealed all the connections between Contras and cocaine that we've already mentioned and countless more. In fact, not only were the Contras working with drug traffickers, but the Sandinistas were as well. The Medellin cartel was playing both sides, working with the Sandinistas and the Contra rebels at the same time. As was Panamanian dictator Manuel Noriega, who became a major target of the investigation. In 1988, the U.S. finally filed charges against Noriega for, quote, turning Panama into a shipping platform for South American cocaine that was destined for the U.S., end quote. This was embarrassing for the CIA and the Reagan administration, who had very vocally counted Noriega as an ally. Felix Rodriguez, the ex-CIA agent who served as a liaison between North and the Contras, was also put under fire for allowing the Ilopongo Air Base in El Salvador to be used as a drug warehouse. Senator Kerry accused Rodriguez of soliciting a $10 million bribe from Colombian drug traffickers, which Rodriguez denied. Thousands of documents were brought forward during the investigation, including Oliver North's personal notebooks. The record clearly established that not only were members of the Contra support pipeline engaged in drug trafficking, the NSC was fully aware of it, and they chose to ignore it. Throughout the 80s, the State Department paid $806,000 to known drug traffickers to help carry aid to the Contras. While the report stopped short of accusing U.S. officials of participating in or encouraging drug trafficking, It is acknowledged that officials, up to and including Oliver North, saw the drug trade as a useful money-making tactic for the underfunded Contras. Two DEA agents testified to the committee that in 1985, North had proposed taking $1.5 million they'd obtained from the Medellin cartel in a sting operation and sending it down to the Contras. The DEA shot this idea down. The Kerry Committee concluded that, quote, U.S. officials involved in Central America failed to address the drug issue for fear of jeopardizing the war efforts against Nicaragua. Indeed, senior U.S. policymakers were not immune to the idea that drug money was a perfect solution to the Contra's funding problem. The report was damning. In the midst of the war on drugs, the Reagan administration had condoned and even paid drug traffickers who were known to be bringing cocaine into the United States. That irony didn't escape journalist Gary Webb. Eight years after the Kerry Committee's report, in 1996, Webb published a series of articles in the San Jose Mercury News that alleged the connection between the CIA and Contra drug traffickers was even deeper than it seemed. All that cocaine the Contras and their supporters brought into the U.S. didn't just disappear into a void. It ended up in the hands of American drug dealers and on the streets of American communities. 
This brings us back to Freeway Rick Ross, the spearhead of the crack epidemic. In 1996, Rick Ross was arrested in a DEA sting operation and sentenced to life in prison. But something about the situation seemed odd to Gary Webb. The informant behind the sting operation was a Nicaraguan drug trafficker named Oscar Danilo Blandon. Blandon had been Rick Ross's primary cocaine supplier since early in his crack-dealing days. And it was revealed all the money Blandon made from international drug smuggling, he sent right back home to the Nicaraguan Contras with the full knowledge and support of the CIA. That's according to Gary Webb, at least. His reporting remains controversial, but it forms the basis for the first conspiracy theory we're going to discuss next week. To sum up what we've covered today, the CIA and National Security Council were definitely, absolutely, working with known narcotics traffickers in their covert mission to fund the Contra War. This ranged from rank-and-file Contra members on the ground in Honduras to major central figures like Manuel Noriega. However, according to the official investigations, that cooperation stopped short of encouraging or aiding them in their efforts to bring drugs into the U.S. But there are some loose threads that multiple investigations in the late 80s didn't quite manage to tie up. And in the past three decades, more information has come out that calls the simple explanation into question. Next week, we'll take a look at three popular theories regarding what really happened during the crack epidemic and how closely the U.S. government was involved in it. Conspiracy theory number one is based on Gary Webb's Dark Alliance series, published in 1996. Webb believes the CIA actively promoted cocaine trafficking among its Contra contacts, including Freeway Rick Ross's supplier, Danilo Blandon, as a way to fund the war in Nicaragua. Even after that cocaine sparked a nationwide epidemic, the CIA pulled the strings to make sure their contacts stayed out of jail and kept moving drugs unimpeded. CIA Director John Deutsch vehemently denied this claim as did much of the mainstream media. But this theory teeters between truth and conspiracy. As we learned from the Kerry Committee, the CIA definitely was working closely with many known drug traffickers. The extent of that collaboration may be deeper than Congress could officially prove. Conspiracy theory number two jumps off from Gary Webb's claims and takes them a step further. This theory postulates that the war in Nicaragua was nothing more than a scapegoat used to hide the Reagan administration's real objective. The U.S. government purposely introduced crack cocaine into America's inner cities to wage a war on the black community. Crack devastated urban communities with addiction, overdoses, and gang-related crime. Then the government responded by militarizing the police force ramping up sentencing laws and putting unprecedented numbers of people, primarily black men, behind bars for life. Looking at the connections between the CIA and cocaine trafficking, it's hard not to wonder if this was all more than a coincidence. This theory is extremely controversial, but it's still a serious question that deserves to be objectively explored. Lastly, we'll turn our focus back to some of the figures we discussed this week, 
Felix Rodriguez, the NSC's liaison to the Contras, and Juan Mata Ballesteros, the drug trafficker who owned Setco Aviation Company. We briefly mentioned that Mata Ballesteros was involved in the murder of a DEA agent in February 1985. That agent, Enrique Kiki Camarena, became something of a martyr figure for Reagan's war on drugs. You may have heard of Red Ribbon Week, the DEA's annual drug prevention campaign. This tradition was started in response to Agent Camarena's brutal kidnapping, torture, and murder at the hands of the Mexican drug cartel and their Honduran associate, Mata Ballesteros, who was soon to become a U.S. State Department employee. Mata Ballesteros's government contract may have been more than a horrifying oversight. Well, this brings us to conspiracy theory number three. DEA agent Kiki Camarena was murdered by the CIA to cover up their involvement in international cocaine trafficking. This idea sounds out there, but it comes directly from Hector Bereas, the DEA agent in charge of overseeing the investigation into Camarena's murder. The theory holds that Camarena was on the cusp of discovering the CIA's links to cartels in Colombia and Mexico that were moving massive amounts of cocaine into the U.S. at the height of the crack epidemic. When Agent Boreas brought forward evidence of the CIA's involvement, he was promptly taken off the case and reassigned to a different office. It wasn't until 2013 that he brought his case forward to the public and it immediately reignited the debate about exactly how responsible the CIA was for the crack epidemic and Reagan's war on drugs. We'll see if there's anything there next week. If you want to learn more about the crack cocaine epidemic, check out Parcast's show Kingpins, which has profiled the lives and crimes of many key players in the cocaine trade, including Manuel Noriega and Freeway Rick Ross. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of Parcast's other shows, on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by David Turk, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Conspiracy Theories is written by Katie Waldron and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy.